Welcome back to STEM Vital, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. How's it going, Emma? Emlyn, it's going well. I'm excited about my lady today. Um, and I'm excited that it's summer. You know, I'm living up north now and like, woo, summer is just a beautiful time here. Yeah. Yeah. The it's um, days are long. No longer cold and snowing. And like, wasn't it snowing in like April there? Yeah. For like a day, there was a weird, a weird thing. But <laughs> um, the days are super long. Like, it's light out until nice. almost 10 o'clock, which is really crazy. Ooh. Yeah. I've never lived anywhere quite like that um, in the summer. So it's been pretty nice. Love it. How are you doing? I've been making birthday cakes for myself, even <laughs> yes. though it's not my birthday, and then eating my feelings. Oh, um, it's okay. And that's been pretty successful. I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling better. I had a low point. I ate a cake. Now I'm feeling, feeling good. Yeah, get that little sugar rush. Mm-hmm. Get you back on. Yeah, sometimes you need to treat, treat yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, Emlyn, it's been a long time since we've yes. talked about our favorite subject. <laughs> I, what is it? I don't um, Psychology. It? Ooh, fun, fun. I feel like, um... I'm excited. I actually... It has been a while since we've talked about a psychologist, and I know... I don't know about... Who was the last one? Was it Anna Freud? Yeah. Like, one of our first ups, you know? Like, years yeah. ago. Yeah. I I think you're always more adventurous <laughs> with what... I always... I, I never know how to get into, like, psychology and stuff like that. So I just yeah. stick to the other sciences. Honestly, psychology... I'm excited. There are certain fields where... Like psychology and I and sort of anthropology, where sometimes the research feels controversial now, you know, mm-hmm. and I I don't yeah. necessarily know how to discuss it while like saying you know this person was groundbreaking and like you know it really is more eh, that like they made history even if what they did was bad or like culturally i don't know it's sometimes just hard to talk about and we're like that's no good yeah yeah or like you know there's a lot of kind of colonial problems in the whole field of anthropology of just like Mm -hmm. you know like white people going to study other cultures and like you know i don't know it's it's weird right yeah um yeah, like a lot of parachute science. Yeah, so I don't know. I try to kind of avoid it because it's it's hard to. I feel like our podcast is a lot of like sort almost not quite saying these people are heroes, but it is trying to like build women up. And I don't want to be yeah. just constantly like, well, actually, you're like, I don't know. 
<laughs> anyway. Yeah, you want to, you wanna, I think, I think we generally try to focus on women whose legacies are, um, st- not still, like, still relevant yeah, a bit. Right. Like, some people's legacies, I think, like, it's good that they made these milestones, but maybe their research and stuff like that no longer has a place. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Or, like, no longer is valid or something like that. Yeah. Or, or they're very controversial, like... <laughs> Uh, who are you going to talk about like two weeks ago? Oh, Diane Fossey. Th- a month oh ago, Diane Fossey, where I we just don't even want to. I don't think we're going to broach that one. That. <laughs> Maybe. It's definitely not during the pan- no. da- pandemic. Maybe if there, if we end pandemic. up in a more happier time, we can broach the controversial <laughs> figure that is Diane Fossey. But in the meantime, listeners, we ask you to just look it up. <laughs> Um, yeah 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 when we're 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 all you know riding high maybe we'll bring you down but right now we're all riding (laughs) riding low we're trying to bring people up yeah but i found (laughs) it's not the time i found a good a good person for this week so uh, yeah excellent anyway okay i'm excited i'm ready yeah so yeah so i was like i want to talk about a psychologist so i went to one of my fave websites psychology's feminist voices which has basically like tons of biographies of women in psychology past and present and um that's cool yeah it's a great website and i found a biography of a really amazing woman that i'd never heard of before her name is martha bernal and she was the first, excuse me, she was the first psychology PhD in the U.S., f- sorry, first Latina psychology PhD in the U.S. And she did groundbreaking research in both clinical psychology and in minority training in the field of psychology. So, cool. Yeah. Awesome. So I was like, okay, she sounds great. She sounds really interesting. I started looking for additional info and I stumbled across a short autobiography she wrote for a book called um, Models of Achievement, Reflections of Eminent Women in Psychology. And I was convinced that we got to tell her story because she said the following in the preface for her (gasps) little autobiography. She said, quotes, quotes, quotes. (laughs) She said, I decided to accept this invitation because it seems important that the life experiences of female psychologists who are culturally diverse be represented among and understood by the members of the American Psychological Association. I also want readers to know... What? (laughs) I was going to say hell yeah, but I only got out the word hell, so it doesn't really make sense. (laughs) Sorry. Continue. Hell. 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 <laughs> okay. So she says, oh, it's not that much long. I, she says, I also want readers to know how difficult it was for me to earn a PhD and to become the first nationally visible Hispanic female psychologist and perhaps to review the definition of merit. Psychologists need to know of the many reasons why there was no other like me prior to 1962 and why there have been precious few since then. So I was like, she's right. And we got to tell her story. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah. So much of my story. Hell. 
just say hell from now on. Not hell yeah, just hell. Yeah, it's it's it sounds a little too much like hey, Heil. Oh Jesus Christ! So no, let's not. No, I'll I'll stick with other yes things to shout. Yeah. So much of my story today. That's exciting. I'm I'm ready. Yeah, comes from her autobiography. This like short autobiography she wrote, and it also comes from further. Um, kind of biographies that were mostly written by one of her colleagues, Melba Vasquez. And as usual, we'll provide links in our bio, but I just wanted to say that up front. Um, Okay, so here we go. Ready? I'm ready. I'm so ready. I'm buckled in. All right. So Martha Bernal... Take me on a ride. Yeah. She was born in San Antonio, Texas on April 13th, 1931. To Alicia and Enrique de Bernal, who had both emigrated from Mexico as refugees of the Mexican Revolution in the 1920s. And they met while taking English night classes in preparation for their citizenship exams. She was raised in El Paso, Texas, a city on the border of Texas and Mexico, for anyone that doesn't know their... American geography or Texas geography. And she lived in a community made up largely of Mexican Americans and their families. And she describes her family as following pretty traditional conservative Mexican values, um, at least while she was young, where women were viewed as caretakers, wives, etc., while husbands go to work. Um, you know, girls weren't allowed to go on dates without a chaperone. Uh, she mm-hmm. says this is kind of the the values that her family had. And she went to gotcha. a school that had a mix of white American and Mexican American students. But she describes that experience as being essentially segregated. You know, not officially, mm-hmm. but... Um, the Mexican-American and white American students generally did not mix socially after a certain age. Yeah. In addition, she and other Spanish-speaking students were punished for speaking Spanish at all on school grounds. Um, They were often treated by their teachers as inferior to the white American students, and she remembers being told not to pursue advanced courses or higher education. And by her teachers. Great. Motivating. Yeah. And yeah. part of that was also being a woman in the 30s mm-hmm. or, and even early 40s. Double whammy. Yeah. Um, but also she said she felt like she she and other Mexican-American girls were discouraged from, like, taking advanced math courses, for example. Um, but she still was able to grow up with... Uh, a really close group of friends throughout all of her childhood and says she went to church, she danced, she sang, she played, and genuinely had a pleasant childhood. Um, And she had two Mm -hmm. sisters and a large extended family that they would often spend time with in El Paso. After graduating high school, she had to persuade her family to let her pursue a higher education. Her father was especially against it and told her, You know, she was at an age where she should be finding a husband, settling down, starting a family. And she even felt a lot of peer pressure to do this since some of her peers were doing just that, which is so crazy. Like, 
I think of high school, uh, like, so young, I can't imagine starting a family, you know? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, Especially if you've been chaperoned on all of your dates. Like, <laughs> I know. Like, going from, like, having a chaperone date to being like, and now you're married. Yeah. Sounds, um, like, quite a, quite a, a leap. Yeah. I was about to say, I'm still not ra- ready to get married. <laughs> you are married. I was like, I know that I remembered I am married. You're so not ready you can't even remember you're married. <laughs> I can't I can't accept what has happened. <laughs> that's, uh, that's crazy. Okay, anyways. One day I'll be ready. Um and part of the reason too that her father was against uh pursuing higher education was because it was a cost, right? And he thought, well, yeah. mm-hmm. if you're just going to start a family, why do you need an education? Which is still like, yeah, but anyway. Um, let's see. So her mother and older sister, though, were supportive because her older sister had gone to business school and like was just like, yeah, you need to get – education is great is what they say. So finally, her father. Yeah, so wait, so her older sister got to go to business school, and he's like, "Yeah, but not you." Yeah. Well, I'm sure he was. I Seems- think maybe the business school was like paid for more. I, I don't really know the story okay. there, but yeah, I guess they're di- like business school and like a grad school, or oh, business school versus college. Yeah, this is just college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So interesting. She spent a year working so that she could save money to go to school, and eventually she had saved enough. And her father finally offered additional financial support that she enrolled in Texas Western University, which is now known as the University of Texas El Paso. So she's still living oh. at home, which is good, um, but she's allowed to yeah. attend college. In 1952, when she was 20 or 21 years old, she received her bachelor's degree in psychology and upon graduation had decided that she wanted to pursue a graduate degree in psychology. Um, This again was met with opposition from her father, especially because she wanted Mm -hmm. to move away from El Paso to study psychology further which would be you know an additional cost both kind of emotionally yeah. and financially and it was just i don't think it was as common to leave yeah to like, well definitely it wasn't as common to leave but um leave your family and things like that for such a thing yeah especially as a woman and i think as a mexican-american mm-hmm. woman it was pretty rare to leave uh like this big community and you know, I don't know, leave your family. I think there was a lot of cultural pressure to stay at home. Um, Mm -hmm. Despite feeling immense guilt at asking for their support and while also feeling extremely isolated away from home for the first time, she did move to Louisiana and worked as an assistant in a psychology department at Louisiana State University. And Um, And this was because she, this was kind of just a, she thought it was going to be a research position, but it turned out to be kind of a clerical, like, secretary position. So she soon after applied to a master's degree program in special education at Syracuse University, and she was accepted. 
and she graduated with her master's degree in 1955. Um, Not long after, she enrolled in a PhD program in clinical psychology at Indiana University in Bloomington. So while in graduate school, she faced more discrimination based on her gender and her ethnicity. For example, I don't have a lot of examples, but she gave a few. She said, um, mm-hmm. Female students in her PhD program were not invited to work on projects with their advisors. Seems difficult to, um... Yeah. <laughs> seems difficult to get your PhD then, right? Well, she it's just they had to come up with and work on their own projects, right? Like, you and I are familiar uh, with that. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Um, she said she would also, and this is just gross, she would also observe male professors in the department chasing around female graduate students in the department, is the, the, is the exact verbiage she used. And I, I'm guessing not, not like literally. I don't know. But like chasing skirt type. Yeah, I think that's. Trying to like, like sleep flirting, with the grad students. Yeah. Yeah. And women in the department... I, I was really chasing them. I don't know. That's I mean, also a horrify. There was no... I don't think that's what they mean, but I like I like slash hate the image of yeah, it's a just, bunch of old men chasing the grad students. But I think it gets the point across of how predatorial yes. they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And that... There weren't mutual relationships right. in the department. In the department, too, a, quote, research assistant, end quote, was used as a term to describe a female graduate student that performed certain acts with a professor. I do not know. Wait, what? Well, I d- <laughs> a research assistant was a term used to describe female graduate students that performed certain types of acts with a professor. Like, non, like, inappropriate. Yeah. I didn't want to say sexual acts, but that's what she said in her autobiography. Which is gross. gross. Yeah. We can always cut that out. But I, this is like her experience. No, I mean, I think, I think everyone should know how gross they are. So she often wanted to drop out of grad school due to this, like, pretty Mm -hmm. unpleasant experience. Um, In one article I read, too, they said that her advisor died the year before her defense, which I'm not – I didn't see that in in her autobiography. She didn't talk about it, and I'm not – I just didn't know that much more about that, but that would also be pretty traumatic if that did happen – um, but yeah. there were, there was one professor, she says, who always encouraged her to stay. And he told her, like, if you drop out, you'll have almost no, it's going to be really, really hard to ever get your PhD again, you know? And so yeah. that kind of motivated her to stay. And finally, she obtained her PhD in 1962. And when she graduated, she became the first Latina to earn a PhD in psychology in the United States, which is it's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot. It also just goes to emphasize how important it is to have allies. Right. Yeah. E- especially when most people are 
being terrible creepos. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, one ally can do a lot of good. Exactly. After graduating, um, things were not easy at first. So, in applying for academic faculty jobs, she would literally receive re- letters back from departments saying, we do not hire women. <laughs> Which I like, in the Great, 60s? thank you. I didn't realize that that was... That in the 60s, they even blatantly just said, we don't hire women. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that does seem late. To just have yeah, that, that policy, right? Like, that's a policy they yeah. have. <laughs> it's not just an unspoken, we don't hire women. They just told her we don't hire women. <laughs> Which is insane. I was going to say... um, to put a timeline, in 1972 was the Equal Rights Amendment. Yes. That. So, the 60s does seem late, but it's before that, so. Yeah, I found... You could legally say you don't hire people based on sex at that point. You could be that blatant. Yeah, I... F- yes, it was a very, like, tumultuous or just... It was not tumultuous. It was a time of like great change and a lot of different civil rights movements were occurring, mm-hmm. you know, like women's rights, African American rights, like Latino, Latina rights. Um, there were quite a few different movements going on during this time, as well as the Vietnam War. So it was a just, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty. Interesting time in history. Um, okay, so, so yes, there was also kind of a movement in psychology towards new learning theories. So for those who haven't taken okay. Psych 101 in a while, <laughs> there are... Or ever. Or ever, yeah. There are... <laughs> like which me. You might have learned about this, though, in animal behavior classes, as I remember learning Never about. took an animal behavior class. Oh. You took it in grad school. Or core. Oh. I guess. It's I not guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you have a PhD in behavior and <laughs> ecology. <laughs> JK, JK. Okay. There are a lot of things I don't know. Can I tell you more than 10 dinosaurs? Yeah. No. Uh, you know? Like, whatever. Don't do it. Okay. So there are three major categories of behavioral learning. There's classical conditioning, which is where it's like the classic, you ring a bell, the dog salivates because it's expecting food and you give it the food. So it's where you learn to associate something with a stimulus that isn't necessarily good or bad. Um, Like, yeah, okay, yeah. And then there's observational learning, which is where you pick up new behaviors by watching another individual and imitating them. And then there's operant conditioning, which is when you learn or change behaviors based on uh, either a reward or punishment of some kind. So there's the whole, Mm -hmm. the concepts of like positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, positive punishment, negative punishment come from operant conditioning, which are probably phrases people have heard of. Uh, You know, they're Mm -hmm. commonly used in pet training, 
you know? Yeah. But they're also a way to describe learning and even how humans learn, too. So Martha was essentially using these principles of operant conditioning to study whether autistic children could adjust their behavior. Um, Though she mainly ended up using this approach to studying and treating children with conduct disorder, where conduct disorder is typically described as an ongoing pattern of aggression towards others and serious violations of rules and social norms um, at home, in school, and with peers. And that's how the CDC describes it. Yeah. Gotcha. So she was... um, Okay, so here's why this is sort of different. So her research was groundbreaking for that time because she was in the first group of clinical psychologists to employ and research behavioral therapies based on these learning theories for treating children with behavioral disorders. So at the time... Instead of giving them drugs? Well... So that's one thing. But at the time, many psychologists still took the fully psychoanalytic, a.k.a. Freudian, approach to treatment, Mm. which we talked about in our episode with Anna Freud, about Anna Freud, where behavioral problems were attributed to being, to kind of this innately bad ego, right? These, like, suppressed feelings that you just have to, like, And the treatment for that is just sitting in a room and talking about your feelings and dreams and, like, analyzing the psyche, right? Yeah, analyzing your penis envy. Yes, exactly. whatnot. And so people were treating, like, really, um, people were treating things like conduct disorder with this psychoanalytic approach, and it was not working. Um. Well, it's now understood that both types of therapy have kind of a time and place and treating different mental illnesses or aspects of mental illness. Psychoanalytic therapy was not effective for helping children with behavioral disorders learn new, less harmful or socially acceptable ways of behaving. So for Marta, it was clear that certain bad or maladaptive behaviors were learned. And so mm-hmm. she was like, we can help kids, like kids unlearn or change their behaviors through therapy based in learning theory, right? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So let's see. She started researching, and beyond this, she started researching how to involve parents and other social agents in a child's life to help children learn new behaviors or change their behaviors. So her first mm-hmm. idea was to teach parents to modify their own behavior, <laughs> like to modify how they parent, basically. Yeah. Um, and to use behavioral modification techniques to help their children change their behavior. So, for example... In one study, she and her students observed parents with their children in different environments, like at home, at school, out and about, in public, and they would record these, sorry, they would record these observations and carefully watch them back later, and even kind of develop new techniques for observing parents and children through this process. 
And then from these observations, they developed lesson plans to give to parents to use at home. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, for more like kind of concrete example, I looked up one study to see really how they did this. And so, they would measure, for instance, how a mother was responding to a child's outbursts or violent episodes. Like, did she ignore it? Did she spank the child? Or did she react in some other way? And they would kind of like count the number of ways she responded to different types of behaviors. And then from kind of this observational data, they would sort of point out where the mother or father or whoever they're observing could change their behavior in order to like change how the child behaves in certain scenarios. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. That makes sense. Yeah. So for a few years, she developed lesson plans like this. And then in the next few years, and she was publishing all of this sort of observational data and the results of it. And then in the few years after that, she studied the effectiveness of plans like that by reviewing similar observational data, case studies, etc., And she found that despite initial success in specific case studies, parents were actually not (laughs) that effective at changing their children's Hmm. behavior over long periods of time. And that it was necessary to engage the child's larger social circle to see more effective change. Basically, just to involve multiple adults teachers, a therapist, and parents all in helping to change how a child behaves. That makes sense. I mean, if you see your parents doing it one way, but everybody else is still doing it, like interacting with you or reinforcing bad behaviors, then you're not going to actually learn. Yeah. Or if you're going to get mixed messages. I even have a feeling that like, you know, they're trying to change a parent's behavior where how often does the parent's behavior change permanently? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I could see that yep. as being really difficult to change an adult's behavior. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was just, it was just really interesting early studies in these behavioral treatments. And they were met with quite a bit of resistance at the time, but they're widely behavioral therapy in general is widely used now though I'm pretty sure it's changed quite a bit in what behavioral therapy actually looks like since Mm -hmm. things like spanking were normal at that time and not viewed as harmful in the way that they are now. Yeah. Um, So yeah, behavioral therapies have changed quite a bit, especially just given how much parenting and interactions with children have changed in the last 50 years. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but it was interesting to see that she was able to play this kind of important role in our early understanding of behavioral therapies. Okay, so she's wrapping up these studies when she got a professor position at the University of Denver. And awesome. Yeah, and so in that time, she's, you know, concluding, she's continuing some of these studies. In 1979, she took a sabbatical, 
And it was during this time that she shifted her entire research focus. So, ooh, I love a late stage research know, focus shift. Me too. So she began to read about Mexican American history, sociology, politics, um, just everything, and realized in her readings that she had received an extremely whitewashed education in El Paso, Texas. <laughs> That had oh, I am sure yeah, that had misled her not only about her ancestors' history, but also just about her own identity, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you know, and some of this is like she's a psychologist, so you can kind of see the mental, like, uh, yeah, she's kind of like analyzing herself a lot. Um, she yeah. realized during this time that she had for so long internalized ideas that minorities were inferior to the point mm-hmm. where she um, she recounts kind of meeting other – the first time she met other Mexican-American psychologists, and she says that she was surprised that they were intelligent, which is pretty mind-blowing. Like <laughs> – yeah. Yeah. So she essentially realizes during the sabbatical, like, I have internalized feelings that my own ethnicity is inferior to white Anglo um, ethnicities. And she began to look into research on the psychology of minorities in America and found that Ooh. there was actually just almost no research to read about. Um, so almost every study she had ever read, researched, cited, etc., was conducted on white American populations. Mm-hmm. So her whole understanding of mental health was based only on white people's mental health, on studies yes. of white people's mental health, unless there were a few studies where um, the psychology of white Americans was compared to minorities. Yeah, like Mamie Phipps Clark. Right. Case, yeah. white people were almost always described favorably, while minorities were described as psychologically, genetically, biologically, culturally inferior. Um, mm-hmm. So, which if you don't believe me... Not you, Emily, but if any listeners don't believe <laughs> okay. me that this is what science looked like or even still looks like often today, um, you should mm-hmm. definitely read Superior by Angela Sagini, yes. where, where she describes yeah. the history and like pseudoscientific underpinnings of race science. Okay. So, yeah, so it's this sabbatical was certainly life changing for Martha. Um, her whole worldview changed, and with it, her research focus changed as well. And so in coming back from the sabbatical, she decided that she wanted to make a new field for herself, essentially, in minority mental health research. And this yes. was very difficult at first. She, It was hard for her to receive any grants. For the work she wanted to do, and she says that this is the first time in her career she felt like a failure and that her imposter syndrome was quite strong during that time. 
just kind of going through this whole identity crisis and feeling like an alien in this field. Um, It was a a rough few years, but she, Mm -hmm. she never gave up on her goal to make broad changes to the field of psychology. So she began researching and writing about how to adapt training in psychology to meet the needs of minority trainees. Okay. To start, she developed a survey distributed to psychologists in psychology departments that measured their preparedness to train minority trainees. And so she traveled to many schools throughout the U.S. to measure even just the number of minorities in different roles in the department, like professors, students, research assistants, um, and to discuss curriculum changes that would help minorities succeed. And awesome. kind of unsurprisingly, she found there were almost no like minorities in many psychology departments and that mm-hmm. most departments had no had not addressed multi had not addressed other cultures or ethnicity at all in their curricula so you know i think she was just curious like is there a place that is already doing this and are they doing it successfully and she kind of found that the majority of of departments were just not addressing this issue at all (laughs) Um, she also began to serve in leadership roles for different committees and organizations in her field, like the American Psychological Association's Committee on Ethnic Minority Human Resources Development. She started the National Hispanic Psychological Association with a few other researchers and was the president of that for a few years. Um, she served on the Commission on Ethnic Minority Recruitment, Retention, and Training to Task Force. And she was also an active member of the Gay, Lesbian, and Bisexual Affairs, which I don't know anything about her personal life. I Honestly, mm-hmm. that's the kind of the only thing that could tell us um, about her life, about maybe outside of research. In 1984, five years after her sabbatical and shift in research focus, she finally received a grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to set up a program for training minorities in clinical psychology. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, five years is a long time, but I'm glad it happened eventually. Um, And she also received a fellowship soon after to study the development of ethnic identity in Mexican-American children. So she's not only like setting up these programs for training psychologists, but she can also finally study, use her earlier training and research to study like child psychology in non-white children, like finally, right? Mm-hmm. So in 1986, she moved to a full professor position at Arizona State University, where she worked in the Department of Psychology and in the Hispanic Research Center, which was a multidisciplinary oh, cool. research center at ASU. And mm-hmm. for several years there, she hosted an annual ethnic identity symposium and she worked closely with a colleague, George Knight, and a group of graduate students on the on studying the developmental course of ethnic identity in Mexican-American children. 
and they published multiple studies in a book during this time where they essentially described the impact of children's larger social circles on their ethnic identity development. So um, essentially that means like they went beyond a nuclear family. They were like, Mm -hmm. you know, a child's ethnic identity is influenced by their parents, by their parents' social circle, by their teachers, by their peers, and they came up with models on how different people influence the development of an ethnic identity. That's very cool. So, like, in ecology, we're more and more starting to think about various different spatial scales Mm -hmm. and how that affects, like, a community or a population. Right. Um, And I just think that's interesting that there's kind of this parallel of, like, looking at this smaller spatial scale of just the family, and it's like, well, there's actually a lot of importance... Um, and need to look at this larger spatial scale or this larger community scale of, um, yeah, you know, all the people they're interacting with and how that affects their identity. That's cool. Yeah. And there's just a lot of, and a lot of nuance too, right? And it, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot in reading some of the papers and I couldn't access a lot of them, unfortunately, but, um, it seemed like, you know, they were looking at specific things like, the mother's education in Mexican history and how that influences their child's ethnic identity. You know, like just these really specific aspects of personal lives and how that influences identity and child development. It's very cool. I like it. Yeah. Um, They also published studies on how minority study participants – or they found that minority study participants respond differently um, to their observer's ethnicity. So, like, if the investigator Mm. is white or not white, would change how participants behave or respond in a study, which is pretty, like, telling... It was... I think that was a pretty big finding, just in that most psychologists were white, right? So if study participants behave differently, depending on who the psychologist is that's studying them, what does that mean for a lot of findings in the field? Yeah. No, I think that's, like, one of those things that we're learning more and more in, like, a lot of different fields. Right. That having a diverse um, group of scientists doing these experiments allow us to get more generalizable findings because the ethnicity and like i know there's a lot of mouse studies that they found that you know white male researchers the the mice respond differently to them than you know to female researchers and stuff like that and so there's a lot of yeah i think this is a thing that we're realizing in a lot of disciplines of like it matters who the scientists are and you need a diverse representation in Mm -hmm. order to get of more accurate information. Exactly. Yep. So, so yeah, she really was able to switch to, you know, she, uh, she, yeah, she just became kind of this activist in, in her field and really like kind of paved the way for further, um, um, just for 
for other minorities and for further recruitment of Mexican-American psychologists in her field Mm -hmm. um, during the second kind of half of her career. So That's amazing. Yeah. So, unfortunately, in the 90s, she was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she Mm -hmm. would end up fighting it multiple times over the next kind of 10 years ago, where, you know, sometimes she was feeling better and it was in remission and she would go back to work. Another time she was in chemotherapy and not, you know, feeling awful. And yeah, it seemed like a really hard time. Um, During this time, though, she still mentored many students and received, you know, many awards. So just a few of those awards. um, She received the Distinguished Life Achievement Award from the Society for the Psychological Study of Ethnic Minority Issues. At the first National Multicultural Conference and Summit in 1999, she was honored as one of four pioneer senior women of color and received the Carolyn at Neve Award for Lifelong Contributions to Ethnic Minority Psychology. In 2000, at the Latino Conference in San Antonio, she was recognized for her contributions to Latino psychologists. And then in 2001, when she was extremely sick from chemotherapy treatments. Mm. She received the APA, the American Psychological Association, Distinguished Contribution to Psychology in the Public Interest Award, which is a top award in their in their field. And despite being so sick, she was able to attend the conference and receive the award. Mm. But she died not long after from lung cancer at the age of 70 in 2001. Yeah. So it seems, so she is definitely recognized for her work in, um, especially for for her later work, though I think her earlier work, you know, gave her a solid ground in the field. Like people respected Mm -hmm. her. Um, Her later work really made her stand out to to everybody so i mean it sucks i think you need to do do it in that order where yeah early on you're like doing really good science that maybe isn't that's just that's like maybe more mainstream or something like that and then people trust you and like understand and then you're like and now i'm gonna blow your mind with kind of yeah doing this new thing and you trust that i can do it Mm -hmm. and that yeah yeah, that's awesome. And even still, though, it it kind of sucks in a sense that like she had to spend so much time participating on a million committees to make like yes, you know what I mean. Like she had to mm-hmm. found all of these committees to try <laughs> to get more minorities in psychology. She literally had to switch her research focus just to get more minorities in psychology and figure out how to change the field so that psychology Mm -hmm. wasn't for white people by white people, you know, but, um, you know, we're all glad that she, she did it, you know, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day. Okay. So yeah, that's the story of Martha Bernal. Amazing. I loved it. Yeah. That was really cool yeah i don't think about psychology a lot but yeah i don't either everybody you've talked well anna freud is a little strange but 
Oh yeah, <laughs> never forget. But I think it. Yeah, I think it's so important that we realize that we have to have diverse groups of people asking questions about diverse populations, right. or else we're going to get very, very skewed. Yeah, I think the the book that you mentioned, Superior, both Superior and Inferior. Yeah. Oh, and there's another book um, that's like something about big data and how it's mostly... I'll have to figure... I'll, I'll put it in the... Um, the no the sh- the show notes okay but there's this book that I've been listening to um, when we were doing road trips that is all about how all of the data that like most of the big data that we have that we're making like public health decisions on right um, like economic issues infrastructure issues it's all based on men Ugh. and so right I think I remember a lot that. of things are tailored to men not. To women, like things like, you know, the size of cars and mm-hmm. seats. So, like, they're less safe for women because they're made, like, the driver's seat is made based on, like, average male height and things like that. Well, like, um, there's also this call right now to get rid of facial recognition technology and policing because it was developed on white faces. And misidentifies non-white people and specifically misidentifies black people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just, yeah, you need diverse researchers, like, uh, and studies on, on multiple different populations to get it right. And, and people, people have this idea that, like, if you have an algorithm, um, that's doing it then somehow it's not going to give you like a biased like racist or sexist result and like that's not true if you have the data that you put into something right is biased racially or sexually you're going to get a biased output yeah yeah but yeah i saw some of those how wrong the facial recognition yeah. can get where like it's clearly obama that's just blurred <laughs> and then when they try to like clear it up it's this like weird creepy like white dude uh, like it's just yeah, so bad it's really bad um <laughs> yeah it's not funny but it's the images are funny the situation is very serious yeah mm-hmm. <sighs> all right you've revved me up okay cool <laughs> <laughs> got me all revved up okay um but that's good it's good it's good to be angry. Yeah, it's motivational. Yeah, it's motivational. Okay, should we work? Yeah, work, yeah, work? yeah. Work, 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 work. All right, welcome back. This is our Women Who Work section, where we give shout-outs to badass ladies making history today. Woo-hoo. And this is kind of like, not quite a Women Who Work, but yeah. it was something that I wanted to like, it's... Cel- today celebrating women yesterday huh anyways i'll just <laughs> tell you what it is instead of trying to make a tagline for it um so my shout out this week so this week nasa announced that the agency's headquarters in washington dc is going to be named after mary jackson 
Wow. Who is the first African-American female engineer of NASA mm-hmm. and one of the, like, key um, people in Hidden Figures. Yeah. The book. Wow. So, yeah. So I thought it was just very timely. She's one of the three women highlighted in the book Hidden Figures, along with Katherine Johnson, who we talked about last week, um, and Dorothy Vaughn, who we'll, we'll have to talk about both uh, Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson in some future yeah, episodes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, Mary Jackson was played in the movie by um, Janelle Monet. You know, that's pretty great. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> That's the biggest yeah, so... achievement of her lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no, but no. I mean, it's it's not not an achievement to be played <laughs> by Janelle Monet. So uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein announced Wednesday... That the agency is going to be naming this building after Mary Jackson. And he said, uh, Mary Jackson was part of a group of very important women who helped NASA succeed in getting American astronauts into space. Mary never accepted the status quo. She helped break barriers and open opportunities to African-Americans and women in the field of engineering and technology. Today, we proudly announced the Mary W. Jackson NASA headquarters building. It appropriately sits on Hidden Figures Way, a reminder that Mary is one of many incredible and talented professionals in NASA's history who contributed to this agency's success. Wow. Hidden no more, we will continue to recognize the contributions of women, African Americans, and people of all backgrounds who who have made NASA's successful history of exploration possible. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah, so I thought that was awesome. Um... And just very important that people are getting recognition and that we get we have big buildings named after diverse people who have contributed versus all of these buildings named after just a bunch of like old white guys. Um, <laughs> well, like Confederate which has white been guys. the trend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Confederate white guys. Um, so, yeah. So kind of a weird women who work. But I just really wanted to like. Yeah. Shout that out. No, I like it a lot. I think it's great. Awesome. So, so yeah. So the, <laughs> I always never know how to end these apps. So we're done. That's it. It's over. Get out of here. Uh, I I've had brunch waiting for me for like thirty minutes, oh, and MG. it's uh, I'll just put it like right outside the door, <gasps> so I'm smelling it. What a jerk. <sighs> I'm I'm, jealous. Um, I'm gonna eat something too. Yeah. Uh, well, so thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you like these episodes and you like this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, especially on iTunes. It helps more people find the pod and then hear about these awesome ladies. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. We also want to thank out um, Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art and Artichoke for our theme music. And as usual. And as usual. <laughs> go go stimulate yourself. yourself. Bye.